How's your family life? Would you describe the relationships in your family as healthy? If not, then you're actually in pretty good company. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is when you read the Bible to find a family that we would describe as healthy? Instead, it's way easier to find family dysfunction. Uh, today, I want to talk about lying in the family. What, what are the consequences? Uh, maybe you've heard the story of the father who wanted to teach his son the destructiveness of lying and so he took a new board and he pounded ten nails into that new board and he told his son, son, these nails represent the lies that you told. I want you to fix the lies by taking out the nails. And so the son did. Afterward, the father asked him, so were you able to fix the lies? And the son said, well, the nails are gone but the scars are still there. He got the point. Uh, trust, the foundation of the family is destroyed in lying. Um, feelings are hurt, uh, lives are changed, relationships are strained or destroyed. Just think of the impacts that lying has had on your family. Now, when I think about lying in the Bible, I think about Jacob. Um, Jacob, actually his name came to be known as deceiver, came to mean deceiver. Jacob's grandpa was Abraham, his dad was Isaac, and even though Jacob wasn't the oldest in his family, uh, God had said that the birthright and the line of the Savior was going to go right through Jacob's line. The problem was is that Isaac wanted to give the birthright to Esau, Jacob's older brother, and so Jacob and his mother devised this scheme um, to trick Isaac into giving the birthright to Jacob and, and deceiving Isaac, and it worked. Now, how do you think that made Esau feel? The Bible says that he was so angry that he vowed to kill Jacob once his father had died and it forced Jacob to flee to another country. Now, hopefully the lying in your family and the impacts of that lying has not reached those levels. But finally, that's where lying leads to. So what do we do? We need to listen to the words of the one who never lies when he speaks. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to the truth. Tell us through the Apostle John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love the way the Bible says it there. It doesn't say he is faithful and loving, though it certainly could have. No, Jesus will forgive your sins because he is faithful and just. Jesus already paid for every one of your sins on the cross. He says that it would now be unjust for him not to forgive you. That would be like requiring a double payment. No, your sins have already been paid for. And so what do we do now? Well, if you're the one who has lied, confess that sin, knowing that Jesus has forgiven it. If you're the one that's been lied to, well, remember that that sin's been paid for. <laughs> do with it what Jesus does. Forgive it. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are the truth and whatever you say is true. Comfort me with the knowledge that my deception is forgiven. Use that forgiveness to empower me to forgive anyone, especially my family members, when they lie to me. In your name I pray. Amen. This week we're talking about the imperfect family and today specifically about favoritism. So. Who's the favorite in your house? Is it you? <laughs> when I was growing up, I was blessed to grow up in a house with very little perceived favoritism from my mom and dad to any individual child. Even if I would try to convince my mom to say that I was her favorite, she would 
Just kiss me on the forehead and say, you are my favorite David George Scharf. Okay, I guess I'll take it. Uh, but it, but even in my house, it was impossible for my parents to, um, to avoid all perception of favoritism. If my siblings are watching this, we know who the charmed child is. I'm not going to say the name. Uh, but for the parents watching this, I guess I'd encourage you to ask yourselves, how are you doing in this area? Uh, do you unintentionally show favoritism to one child over another? I mean, the tough thing is, is that each child we need to treat as an individual, and it's difficult for a child to understand that different treatment doesn't necessarily mean favoritism. But you know what? Sometimes it is favoritism, even if we don't like to look at it in those terms. Yesterday we saw how Jacob had deceived his father Isaac and, and, and stole the birthright blessing. Um, well, eventually in time, Jacob was blessed with a huge family. Uh, he had 12 sons, but he doted on the 11th son because that 11th son, Joseph, was the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Are you seeing a little problem with Jacob's personality? So when Joseph was about 17 years old, uh, Jacob decided to buy him a richly ornamented robe. Uh, the kind that foremen would wear. In other words, um, his father was saying, you're no longer going to be a grunt worker in the field. Um, you're going to be in charge. Now, none of his other brothers received a robe like that. How do you think that made them feel? Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about the green-headed monster of envy. Uh, but for, day, for today, how do we avoid giving the impression of favoritism to people? Well, how did our Savior? Jesus came into this world looking for someone. He was looking to call to himself the rich person as well as the poor. He was looking to, to, to correct the self-righteous Pharisee as well as the common sinner. And do you see what I'm getting at? Jesus came looking just for the world and therefore just for you. And what Jesus did for you by dying on the cross, he did not just for you but also for the world. And so every person in our lives is individually special to God. Yes, you are special to God and, and taking nothing away from that relationship, we also understand that each person is precious in God's sight. And so treat every person in your life, especially parents to children, as the special object of your love and people will not think that you play favorites. Instead, they'll know that you love them as much as they can be loved. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me as well as the whole world. Teach me through that all-encompassing love to reflect that in my relationships with others. Amen. Today, our imperfect family deals with envy. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, but Joseph was not the oldest son, not by a long shot. He was actually number 11 of 12. Anybody from a big family knows the rule that you have to understand your rank in the family and you cannot mess with a higher rank. So here's how it works. I'm number seven of 14 in my family. That means that I cannot mess with number five because if I mess with number five, then numbers one through six are gonna gang up on me. However, if I wanna mess with number nine, fine. You just can't mess with a higher rank. Uh, well, after Joseph got that richly ornamented coat from Jacob, um, his brothers got really envious. And the Bible says that they hated Joseph and they couldn't say a kind word to him. Literally, it says they couldn't say shalom to him. Shalom is the Hebrew way of saying hi. They were so envious of him that they couldn't even say hi to him. Well, to make matters worse, Joseph had these dreams. And one of the dreams, the brothers were, were gathering grain 
and their sheaves of grain bowed down to Joseph's sheave of grain. Now, if you are a number of 11 of 12 and you have this dream, what do you do? Remember the rule. You keep your mouth shut. Uh, this first time, I think we can chalk it up to Joseph's being naive, but what does he do? He blabs it to his brothers. A and you can just picture the scene. Crickets are chirping as he's excitingly telling the story. There's a big smile on his face, total deadpan on the brothers' faces. Uh, let's put it this way. They were not as excited about Joseph's story and, and his dream as, as he was. But then Joseph had another similar dream and he did it again. And the brothers got so envious that their envy showed itself in conspiring to murder their brother, in instead selling him into slavery, and then for the next 22 years lying to their father, that, that, letting him think that a wild animal had ripped, ripped Joseph apart. Now, maybe it hasn't gotten to that point in your family, the envy, and I pray it has not, but that's finally where envy leads. Um, envy is... Is, trying, is going to end up leading us to try to unfairly and, and, and sinfully take what somebody else has. Uh, understand the, the root cause of envy. It's us blaming God that he hasn't given us what we think we deserve. And thank God he doesn't treat us that way. No, instead, this is what scripture says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus, the one with everything, gave up everything, even his own life on a cross, so that you could have everything. You have a savior in Jesus who loves you, who, who provides for you, who, who listens to your prayers and answers them, who, who forgives your sins, who works all things out for your good, and oh yeah, by the way, has a room with your name on it waiting for you in heaven. What could we have to be envious about? Let's pray. Jesus, show me your grace in my life and I will never be envious again. Amen. We've been talking about family dysfunction and the imperfect family this week. Today I'd like to talk about self-esteem. So yesterday we saw Jacob had 12 sons. How did that happen? Well, he had more than one wife. Uh, you see, Jacob's uncle was a deceptive man named Laban, and Laban had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Uh, the Bible describes Leah as having weak eyes, which is a euphemistic way of saying that she wasn't very attractive, while Rachel was beautiful. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel, and he agreed to work for seven years for Laban if he could just have her hand in marriage. And so after the seven years of labor, which veiled daughter did deceptive Laban, Laban send into the bridal tent? Well, his weak-eyed daughter, Leah. And when Jacob found out about it the next day, he was outraged and he, he confronted Laban and, and he worked out a deal where he could marry Rachel. Finally, he had his favorite wife. How do you think that made Leah feel? Well, she had low self-esteem. And it only caused her to have a competitive relationship with her sister, Rachel, for the rest of their lives. Do you struggle with self-esteem? I actually don't know how a person can't struggle with self-esteem. Here's why I say that. Because self is the problem. Because we're, we're sinful and have sinful thoughts, I'm not sure how a person can have high self-esteem. Because even Isaiah the prophet says, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so I really don't like that term self-esteem because I don't think anyone can have high self-esteem.
So are we doomed? Well, no. We just need to get our esteem from another place. You are more valuable than the most valuable diamond ever found. You are worth the blood of Jesus, the priceless blood of Jesus. And do you know why you're worth that? Because that is what Jesus was willing to pay to win you, to make you his own. So now, it really doesn't matter what other people say about you. That can't affect your esteem. It doesn't even matter what you say about you. That cannot affect your esteem. The only thing that matters is what God says about you. And do you know what God says about you because Jesus made you his own? He looks at you and says of you what he says of his son. This is my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now that's Christ's esteem. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, continue to show me how valuable I am to you. Only then will I truly see my worth in your eyes. Amen. The family dysfunction that we'll talk about today is unfair ridicule. Sadly, this is something that you see in siblings as they grow up and when they become adults, it only becomes slightly more sophisticated. Uh, let's go back to the time of the prophet Samuel, actually to just before Samuel's birth. Samuel's mother was a woman named Hannah. Hannah was married to Elkanah, who was also married to another woman named Penina. Now, Penina had children, but Hannah was barren. Hannah had a, a husband of social standing, of moderate wealth, of faithful piety, but she had no son. And Penina, the other woman, would not let her forget it. This is what the Bible says. And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her, till she wept and would not eat. Now, I know my relationship with food. She must have been really upset. And you can just picture the, the, uh, Penina's provocation here. No children, Hannah? Uh, don't you want children? Doesn't Elkanah want children? How, how does it feel to always disappoint him? Doesn't the Lord love you? You've probably been there. Not, maybe not about um, not having children, but your rival knows your buttons and knows how to push them and, and it's really not fair. So what did Hannah do? She went to the house of the Lord and she prayed about it. Uh, she said to the, to the priest Eli, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. That is a beautiful definition of prayer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord and Eli told her to go in peace and then the Bible says this, Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Take note of that. Her, her countenance changed before her condition changed. In other words, she still didn't have a son at this point, but just praying it out made her feel better because God knows. And he knows what you're going through too. Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord of hosts, assuming that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman matters to him. That's a good assumption. Eventually, God blessed Hannah with a child, she named him Samuel. And through that horrible ordeal, Samuel would actually bring about the salvation of a whole generation of people as he would bring them back to the Lord. Now, without Penina's provocation and unfair ridicule, that may never have happened. You see, God is able to take the smirks and the digs and the venom of the Peninas in our lives 
and work it out for our best. He hears us. God, whose son Jesus took the, the smirks and the digs and the venom of the people at the cross, he used that to bring about our salvation. So I don't know exactly how God is going to work with whatever you have going on right now, but this I know. I know our God, and it'll be good. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, when others ridicule, point me to your promises, to your love on the cross, and use even that ridicule to bless me. Amen. Hey, it's Amber L.B. Swenson. You might remember when my podcast, Little Things, was right here on Grace Talks. Or maybe you've never heard of me. Either way, I want to invite you to listen to Little Things, which is now its own podcast. We take a look at little things and little ways that we can change our thinking to know and love God more. So please check out Little Things wherever you listen to your podcasts.